Hi, and welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we're continuing our fall series on recent written work by scholars considering historical video games. Today's guest is Dr. Alyssa goldstein Seppenwall, and she's here to discuss her book, Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games, published by the University of Mississippi Press in 2021. Dr. Seppenwall is Professor of History and Graduate Studies Coordinator at California State University, San Marcos. Her research focuses on the French and Haitian revolutions, modern Haitian history, French colonialism, and French Jewish history. She's also a past winner of the Break Bill Outstanding Professor Award at Cal State San Marcos. Her new book, Slave Revolt on Screen, studies the depiction of the Haitian Revolution by films and video games, including Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry. Alyssa, welcome to History Respond. Thank you so much, Bob. I'm really excited to be here. I'm very excited for you to be here, for you to finally be here. This has been a podcast that I've been wanting to do for a while, but a lot of stuff has happened in the last year, last couple of years. And so, uh, yeah, I'm glad that we're finally able to do this. Um, so congratulations on the book. I got a review copy from the publishers, wonderful people over at University of Mississippi Press. And uh, I've got to say, I really, uh, really enjoyed it. And I uh, can't wait to talk to you about it. Thank you so much, Bob. That means a lot coming from you. So uh, before we get started with talking about video games and kind of representations of the Haitian Revolution, representation of slavery in games and also film, wanted to talk to you a little bit, kind of big picture, about uh, the history of Haiti and the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and, you know, growing up, I can only talk about my own personal experience, but growing up in Texas, I feel like I'd only ever learned about Haitian history or the Haitian Revolution when I was in college. And, you know, by the time I finished graduate school, however, in 2014, I felt like the Haitian history and the Haitian Revolution was becoming a more common part of, you know, college curriculum, but then also surprisingly in high school curriculum. I can remember, uh, you know, as a poor graduate student, I was grading uh, AP world history exams a couple of summers and several of those questions, several of the document-based questions were based on the Haitian revolution. So I'm just wondering, was it just me that was living under a rock before college where I just wasn't aware of Haiti or the Haitian Revolution and its history? Or do you think that there is something that has changed with the profile of Haiti in terms of education in American schools? That's a really good question, Bob. And no, you are not living under a rock. And no, it was not just Texas. Um, in fact, what you just said maps on really well, I think, to the kind of rediscovering of the Haitian Revolution in the late um in the in the zeros and in the teens um when the haitian revolution happened i've called it uh, uh, an event that sent shockwaves across the atlantic and frightened enslavers who were afraid that after this revolution which was the first successful revolution by enslaved people to overthrow the slavery system and create an independent country um Haiti had been ruled by France, and so the revolution started in 1791, and then Haitians declared independence in 1804. Um, it scared the crap, uh, if I can say so, um, out of enslavers all around the Atlantic. In the United States, there was a lot of discussion about not wanting to be 
um, more lenient in the slave system because it might bring on another Haiti or another Saint-Domingue, which was the colonial name for it. Um, and scholars like Michel Wolf Trouillot and Yves Beynot have traced this kind of silencing of Haitian history that ran through the 19th century into the 20th, even though it was sometimes uneven. Um, and I found that in the first half of the 20th century, there were African-American historians in the U.S. who wanted to rescue this history. So I never like to say that um, North Americans just found this history in the 90s because you have this important work by scholars like Anna Julia Cooper and Rayford Logan in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But in the 1990s, um, maybe I can say white North American scholars started um, to rediscover this history. And you had a number of books come out um, in the 1990s by David Gegis and then Carolyn Fick and then John Garrigus wrote a dissertation. Um, and then there were more of us working on it. I did my dissertation in the 90s. Um, and then 2004 was the bicentennial of the Haitian Revolution. And there were a gazillion conferences held and more books came out. And I think that coincides then with your starting to hear about it in college and by 2014 it being in a PhD program. Because I graduated from college, I went to Penn in 1991, never heard of the Haitian Revolution. <laughs> and it was really just as a scholar of France. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you that in 1989, which was the bicentennial of the French Revolution, um, people have pointed out, like Yves Beynot, that there was silence about the, the colonial aspect yeah. of the French Revolution, that the major bicentennial volumes didn't talk about the Haitian Revolution at all. Um, and I did a study looking at French textbooks from 2004 to 2006, and there was only some change by then. So yes, um, now I think you have an um, dichotomy between some high schools in the United States where this has been embraced as part of AP World History, integrating Black history into the age of revolutions, and other places where they're just still teaching old-fashioned history with barely uh, a mention of Haiti at all alongside yeah. the American and French revolutions. Yeah, it just I felt like growing up, and I had very good social studies teachers. I was one of the few growing up in Texas who had actual social studies educators and not coaches uh, teaching my classes. So that was really beneficial, and I think it led me to my career path. But also, it was like, if we had any sense of any other revolution besides the American Revolution, it would be, what were Thomas Jefferson's ideas about the French Revolution, uh -huh. right? Uh, you know, how did the French Revolution influence, you know, John Adams' administration, etc. And so, that was it. And But now, I feel like it's just a completely different world. And it doesn't surprise me that uh, scholars of color were attempting to bring this history in mm -hmm. and were being yeah. unsuccessful until... Yeah. Yeah, the '90s and yeah. the 2000s. The other, the, the other element I'll add, and aside from being a video game and film historian, I I'm kind of a historiographer. I really like to write about the history of history, and that's what my second book I'm um, focused on. You're in on good on company. Haiti. I love that too. <laughs> Thank you. So, but I was going to say, you mentioned U.S. history, and I think that was another part of the impetus as scholars of the early republic started to think more about Black history and the founders' reactions mm -hmm. um, to issues of slavery and race. Obviously, Haiti was one really fertile place to look for that. So there were started to be studies on Jefferson and Haiti or Adams and Haiti. Yeah, 
Fascinating. Okay, well, let's turn to the subject of this book, which is, you know, primarily on film, but then also games. And, you know, this type of book, I feel is still really uncommon for a historian to write. You know, it's something it's really welcomed, something that we really love here at History Respawn. But, you know, it's not really common to see uh, in the annals of the American Historical Review, for instance. And so, I'm wondering what was the initial inspiration for this project? And then also if you could tell us what was it like as a historian kind of approaching media studies and then also collecting sources for this kind of book? Thanks, Bob. Maybe I should separate film and games in my answer. So I've been working on film for a long time. When I initially did history and film, it was just, quote, just for fun. (laughs) So I was involved in a local film festival in San Diego. And each year I would give introductions to films. And it was just kind of an annual hobby. (laughs) Each year I would write introductions to a few films. um, And in classes I would use films. In my um, uh, comparative French colonialism class, for instance, We analyzed films on French colonization in Haiti, Algeria, and Vietnam. And we would think about whose story is being told in this film. Is it the colonizer? Is it the colonized? Is it a mix? And so I always did that just for fun. Um, And uh, um, about 13 years ago, a friend of mine asked me, could I write up one of the introductions that I had done for the San Diego Jewish Film Festival on a film that was about North African immigrants in France, Um, one Jewish and one Muslim. And so I thought, oh, okay, I guess I can write about film. Actually, I had written a few things about film before. Um, But so I was working on film and I was planning to do then some articles on the Haitian Revolution in film. And and one day in, in my comparative French colonialism class, a student named Nick Boyens, who's now a developer, said, oh, Dr. S, there's, you know, a brand new game on what we're studying. And I said, what do you mean a brand new game on what we're studying? And he said, what, what we're studying? <laughs> Slavery in Saint-Domingue. And I looked at him like he was crazy because, <laughs> um, you know, this this was while you were in graduate school. So people were starting to pay attention to Haiti, but a video game company, I, I just didn't understand that. I had been a gamer when I was much younger um, in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, I was very young in the late 70s, but my father would bring home a terminal from work that we could game on. And um, I just didn't realize that there were games on such serious historical topics. And I was suspicious, of course, but I watched the trailer for Freedom Cry and it was from the perspective of enslaved or formerly enslaved people like Ottawale. And I was kind of shocked. Um, I had been working on films on the Haitian Revolution. There are not that many. So I had been thinking about the fact that Film studios seem to have a problem with the story that's about um, retributive black violence on the way to freedom. Um, and I, I just couldn't, it was so puzzling that there was this game. So I started to investigate this game. Students then started to tell me about other games that were coming out that had um, Haitian themes like Red Dead Redemption mm-hmm. 2 recently. Um, and gradually this article that I was doing about films and games on the Haitian Revolution grew (laughs) into a book. And I'll say that's especially thanks to the University of Mississippi Press, because I didn't think I was writing a book. (laughs) Um, And I just, 
you know, the Haitian revolution has become a topic that's more interesting to people, but it just, I just didn't know how many people would be interested. It sounded <laughs> narrow films and video games on the Haitian revolution. And they assured me, no, that I was really on the cusp of things and that this is something that would interest people outside of my field of French and Haitian history. Um, and so that was really motivating and it just kept going. You asked about sources. When I originally started this project, I thought, okay, I think I have three films that have been about the Haitian revolution ever. Make it four when you include a documentary. Burn mm -hmm. with Marlon Brando, also called Queimada. Um, this French Toussaint Louverture miniseries um, that came out in the early 2010s. Um, this documentary called Egalité for All. Um, and then I found this 1952 Hollywood movie, Lydia Bailey. And so that was pretty much all that I knew about. Um, but it, it one of the things about this um, project, Bob, that was really important, and I know I'm going into detail, but this issue of sources is, is, so, is so important. I had to look beyond traditional archives. Mm -hmm. Usually for projects, I do things interlibrary loan and I borrow from other libraries and I live in WorldCat the catalog that shows what other universities have. But I realized that there were films by Haitians that had not been widely distributed, that North American libraries and others didn't hold. So I had to track down filmmakers in many occasions, sometimes on Facebook and say, how can I see your film? Um, and occasionally people gave me a copy that was in their computer because it wasn't publicly available. I would get a zip drive of a film that had been screened publicly, but was not otherwise wow. available on yeah. DVD. Um, and then for games, again, those were leads because there are not a lot of university libraries that hold game material. So I relied on a lot of gamer-generated content. Um, Moby Games <laughs> has lots of screenshots. YouTube has playthroughs. Mm -hmm. uh, I also looked to blogs by game critics. Evan Narcisse, for instance, writing about... Um, Freedom Cry, his his reaction was something that was really precious because it's one thing for me as a white scholar and historian of Haiti to say what I think of Freedom Cry or other games. But I, I think it's also meaningful to see how people of Haitian descent and others of African descent have reacted um, to this game. And then I did interviews with creators. So I tried to track down the historical consultants or people who've been involved in games and the creators to ask them questions. So yes, that's a long answer, but yeah, that's how I came to be writing about games and how I gathered things. Yeah, well, it's a it's a question that we're really interested to hear at Re History Respond. You know, with the series that we've done on kind of published work, you know, it's kind of highlighting the sense that yes, scholars are working on this, but they're having to develop new skill sets that you know require work that historians in particular just don't really do. We don't mm -hmm. get training in this, you know. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, when I was going to graduate school, WorldCat was still considered kind of a new thing. And, you know, uh, historical abstracts and, uh, you know, JSTOR had just become expanded. And now it's like, okay, well, but you've got to include, when you're talking about games, you've got to include sources uh, from YouTube or sources yeah. from a podcast. And these are viable sources. Um, and you're just not going to get the kind of analysis that you would expect to see in the written world, you know, in the kind of ways in which scholars have gotten them for the past centuries. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, that's 
That's interesting. And, you know, particularly interesting to hear you talk about gaining access to these films. I mean, there, there's parts of your books where you talk about, um, you know, Chris Rock's top five, uh, you know, the Marlon Brando film Burn. I think that I saw that in graduate school. Um, so these are kind of readily available, uh, especially top five. But then, like you said, so many of the books that you so many of the films you talk about just not readily available. Mm-hmm. So it takes a little bit of extra work. But uh, I'm really glad you did because it really... Thank you. Makes for a compelling book. Uh, And I'll just add for research, again, for anyone listening who might be thinking about doing more games research, I'm teaching a class right now, which is about, it's a senior seminar, history beyond the archive and beyond the monograph, Mm. non-traditional histories. So I find myself, we're in the research stage right now, kind of bifurcating my instruction for people who are working on film or primary sources or novels. I want them to be looking to monographs first, and I'm teaching them how to find them. But then for the students who are working on games, I'm telling them, well, you're probably not going to find very much. So we need to be looking to different places, journal articles, blogs, and other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So there's just not that critical mass. As you said, my book is one of the first books by a historian um, who works in a, a subject area who is analyzing games in that subject area. Chris Kempschel um, did a book about World War One games, and they're definitely essay collections, um, but there's just not a lot of them. So I sit with my students. I pull out Playing with the Past. I pull out Digital Games as History. I pull out um, Virtual History, and I see if their game is discussed. And otherwise, you know, we look for articles. Yeah, yeah. So your book, uh, it examines quite a few games, but really focuses in on Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry. And you argue in the book that this game tends to do a better job of addressing Haitian history, and in particular, the history of slavery in Haiti, you know, when you compare it to the popular films that you look at in this book. And I'm wondering, what do you think made Freedom Cry a relative success in this regard? So I think there's two parts to the answer. One is the um, drawbacks or the weaknesses of films, because I'm making that argument in comparison to films, non-Haitian films. And the second is what Ubisoft did. And this was made at a moment when Ubisoft was trying to offer protagonists who are not just white males. Mm. I know there was a backlash afterwards um, and developers there have said that that didn't last. But at that moment, they were trying to think of how to do things differently. And their developers seem to have had a lot of freedom. So Jill Murray, who was the lead writer on that game, she did a really serious job of doing research on the Haitian Revolution. She read a ton. Um, and they hired a really serious historian. Um, I think we've talked before on social media about um, uh, game companies hiring historians. Ubisoft definitely does that. But again, not all historians right, have the same narrative. So the person that they hired, who was um, Jean-Pierre Leglonec of Sherbrooke University, he also did a really good job of trying to make sure that they represented slavery in a respectful way. And that this was not like um, playing history to slave trade, that slave Tetris, mm-hmm. that obscene slave Tetris game. So that was one thing. They they did a really, um, and, and Jill Murray has also talked um, about the fact that she has Haitian relatives in her family. And she, it just made them sad, they said, that they didn't see themselves in games. And that she really wanted to give 
people a game in which they felt that they could be seen and their story was represented. So you've got that on one side that here I think Oopsoft did a really good job. Um, the other, again, is the weaknesses of the films. And as I argue in the book, um, Hollywood studios, which have a lot of the film capital um, in the world, especially compared to Haiti, have not really wanted to make films that are about um, Black violence if there's no white hero. Um, and when there are stories about slavery that are made in Hollywood, whether we're talking about 12 Years a Slave or we're talking about Amistad, it's usually about peaceful enslaved people who are rescued by a white hero. <laughs> yeah. um, and I talk about the resistance to having a film that would be about um, Black people freeing themselves. So um, having violent protagonists in a video game doesn't seem to scare people. And again, um, Jill Murray emphasized that um, gamers already knew Adewale. They knew this protagonist, that he had been in Black Flag um, in AC4, and that people were comfortable with him. They liked him. So it became more of a bankable proposition. Because again, this is driven by uh, commercial developers by anticipated profits they they thought that people would like this game mm -hmm. yeah i i think it's remarkable ubisoft taking this approach because you know you compare this to films and how risk adverse they are but it's not like these games cost nothing right so these cost a lot and you know freedom cry was a downloadable content it's a now separate standalone product but even if it's less than a full-blooded AAA game, that is still hundreds of millions of dollars yes. poured into this. And to have, you know, that character, that type of story told and to have historical advice on it as well is really remarkable. Um, you know, I think uh, here at History Respawn, we give Ubisoft a lot of grief, uh, you know, particularly recently with their corporate culture. Um, but... I think, too, that it's remarkable to have a developer spending so much money and mm -hmm. developing these games in what seem like, from the outside looking in, risky propositions, mm -hmm. you know, and um, they do this with their uh, mainline Assassin's Creed series where they've got the Discovery Tour mode, which is all, you know, using historians and educational based and... I, I've often wondered how much money are they making on this? I have no idea, mm -hmm. but they keep doing it. So there must be some money there. And I think it's, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, it's, it, it's not like they're always successful. Uh, I think your book does a good job of pointing out some of the remaining problems with freedom cry. Also looking at uh, Assassin's Creed liberation, uh, which mm -hmm. came out earlier on a portable device and then became a standalone product. Um, but still, to have that kind of material in a main game and mm -hmm. to have it be arguably uh, more popular than many historical films or historical TV shows is, is quite something. Yeah, I'll add that when I was writing the book, I didn't know about all of the problems with corporate culture at Ubisoft. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of the news came out... Um, later so my book came out in 2021 and i think in 2020 i started to see people including joe murray talk about what they had faced mm -hmm. at ubisoft and so i squeezed a couple of footnotes yeah. into the book acknowledging that this had been um maybe a special moment um which maybe will return again but i i hadn't appreciated 
how hard it was and that then there was this backlash yeah. uh, inside the companies yeah. yeah where people said please give us a game with a white male protagonist from now on <laughs> yeah um it, it another thing that's interesting to me and i uh, this is not a criticism of your book but it's something that is really interesting to me about ubisoft in general is that you know, this is a game that is, uh, you know, the developers primarily French Canadian, uh, you know, with French corporate heads. Uh, and so it is actually you know, up to this point with uh, Freedom Cry it was actually very rare for Ubisoft to ad adapt French history. And it, I don't know if you got a chance to play or watch videos for Black Flag, but, you know, that is a game set in the golden age of piracy that includes copious numbers of, you know, British soldiers and sailors copious numbers of Spanish soldiers and sailors, but then the French are mysteriously missing from mm -hmm. the golden age of piracy. And then furthermore, you know, with uh, their French Revolution game, Unity, um, it has a very peculiar look on French history and the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And I've just, I've been fascinated by that. And this is more of a comment than a question, really. But I've just, I, I would really you know, love to see a really, a really thorough study of that. I'm thinking through, do you know which city um, in Ubisoft where Black Flag was developed? I don't, not off the top of my head. So, yeah, I, I have to check that also. And I suspect, again, so in Montreal, um, in Quebec too, but in Montreal, you have one of the largest populations of Haitians outside of Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, you have Haitians who've left the country and gone to Boston and gone to New York but they have to, or Miami, but they have to speak English there. <laughs> so even though Montreal is very cold, so I, I really think that that local context was important yeah. to this decision Yeah. Um, and, and the way that the game came out. Too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so your book ends in chapter 10 with a look at games developed um, by people from the French Caribbean uh, and uh, their look at not only Haitian history, but then also the history of slave resistance. Uh, and this chapter focuses on a wonderful profile of uh, Muriel Tremy, I think is the mm -hmm. pronunciation. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Muriel Tremy. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners, I don't want you to have to recite all of chapter 10 for us, but could you kind of introduce Tremy and her games uh, for our audience? Sure. Muriel Tremi is great. And I also just want to give a shout out to two people before I talk about this, because it really took a village for me to find all of these games. So my friend Paul Klammer, who has a new book coming out about um, King Henri Christophe of Haiti, he just sent me an email once. He knew I was working on Freedom Cry. And he said, oh, I, I just saw this blog about this old game that was about slavery. So you know, that really put me on to discovering this and being able to write um, chapter 10. And there's also a wonderful game historian who now works in Oakland. I think it's called the Video Game History Archive. Oh, uh, Video um, Game History Foundation. Yes, that's what it is. He used to be at American University as a librarian. He also was instrumental in helping to make the um, fact that the game code was available known, and he helped me um, play it through simulation. Oh, wow. Um, so Muriel Tremi, um, Elijah Lee, um, uh, who has a really great YouTube channel, um, he's found that she was the first Black woman game designer. So not just someone really cool, but the first um, Black woman to be in this field. And so she's also someone that I interviewed um, and was able to contact and find more about her games. So she um, 
was an engineer from the French island of Martinique, which is a little bit like Hawaii for us. It's a territory that had been colonized and then became like an equal state, an equal department, although there are still inequalities. Um, and she went to the Metropole to Paris. She went to engineering school. She started to work on weapons for the French military. Um, and she just kind of decided that she wanted to do something more creative. So it was the 1980s that she got into this field of designing games and it really was like creating things from scratch. Um, and she worked at a studio in France called Cocktail. And, and she said that they gave her so much creative freedom. Um, she was like an indie film director, but with the resources for this company. Um, and she made um, two games that were themed on slavery in the French Caribbean. The first was called Mawillow. Um, and that's a really interesting game about the legacy of slavery. It's kind of a haunted house story in which you try to figure out who are the identity of these ghosts that are haunting this old plantation. And you move back and forth between the 1920s, which is the present in the game, um, and then earlier in, in the 19th century. Um, and then the second game was called Freedom Rebels in the Darkness. Um, and that came out in 1988. So like Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, which came out um, 25 years later, this was a game in which you were um, helping enslaved people to revolt. Um, and it's, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it looks much more old fashioned. It looks like Pac-Man a little as you're navigating <laughs> around the board um, with your joystick um, or with your cursor these days. But it just was such an interesting game. And some of the flaws that I saw in Freedom Cry in terms of things that were anachronistic were not in this game. Mm -hmm. And also just it was more personal also because it was made not just by Muriel Tami, but she was working um, with the novelist Patrick Shamwazo. Um, and it when Paul Clamor told me about this game, I was shocked because Patrick Shamwazo is in fact one of my favorite novelists. Oh, wow. I, lo I love his novelists about the leg uh, his novels about the legacy of slavery in the present and he also has worked on film and he also worked on um bd um uh, comic books but i could not find anything that talked about his work on this video game and so that was particularly exciting then for me to be able to talk about this form which as you note for historians has been kind of looked down on yes and here you have Patrick Shamwazo <laughs> working on this game also. So I had a lot of fun in Chapter 10 talking about these games that predated um, Freedom Cry and looking at this history. Yeah, that's a really, really great chapter. I don't want to kind of step over your research and your writing there because I want people to go and buy the book. <laughs> but it's a really, really uh, good chapter. It's Thank one you. that I, yeah, I really enjoyed. Um so this book, it, it makes the argument that games are worthwhile topics for research for historians. And, you know, that's kind of an argument that we make all the time here at History Respawn. We've been doing it for almost 10 years now. Um, but I'm wondering, in your experience, and particularly now that you've got some distance from the publication of the book, do you yourself find that scholars are more eager to engage with games and this type of research, and then furthermore, and this is kind of looking farther ahead, do you think that games will ever become an acceptable medium 
for scholars to present research. Uh, so not just analyzing games, but maybe using games as the basis to tell mm -hmm. research stories. Yeah, so for the first question, I think, right, there, there are historians who are gamers and historians who are not gamers. So in the second category, there have been a lot of people who are like, I was when Nick Boyens talked to me that they just didn't know that there were games like this out there. And so I know some people who have started then to investigate um, games in their field. And the challenge, again, if you're not a really good gamer, um, and I'm not, <laughs> is to be able to see the content of the game if you keep getting game over. So that's where um, YouTube is really helpful. But I, I tell people about all of the gamer-generated content that there is, um, which really helps to write about it. The second is people who are gamers, but they have felt that that wasn't part of being a historian. Yeah. They felt that they were separate. And I definitely hope that I've enabled some people to feel, okay, I can write about this. Like I was doing, you know, what I thought was, or what other people see as serious history, but no, I can, I can do this. Um, and I know more people are creating classes, so that's something that's really great to see also. Um, I would love to see people present history in a game format. Um, my my class right now, um, I don't necessarily expect them to write um, a paper, although many of them will. They can make a video, they can propose a game, and the game would be answering some kind of gap in the historiography. So I would love to see that. I think that um, we're starting to see change in the profession. The American Historical Association, um, March 2021, the AHR had its first issue um, that focused on games. Um, and the conference, I think, is starting to take um, games more seriously. So we'll see. I think there's a lot of work to do. I mean, with my students, I tell them, um, Whatever you're working on, you're trying to come up with a project that has an original angle. Yeah. Um, and I tell them for video games, it's easy because <laughs> there's not that much work. And a lot of the work on historical video games is not by historians. Yes. It's by people in communication or literature. So even if there are 10 articles that are about the game you want to work on, they're probably not from the angle that we're looking at them from, comparing them to historiography. So, yeah. Yeah. There's lots of room. That's what I always tell historians who ask me about doing this work is, you know, well, oh, shouldn't this be media scholars or something? And I'm like, no, I mean, when we're talking about historical games, your historical expertise really goes a long way because when you're doing this analysis, who better to understand the historiography of the topic that's in this game than a historian, right? I mean, we're the ones who are most aware of what scholars have written, but then all of the crazy pop culture that has been done on that particular topic. And I feel like your book is kind of a key example of that because it's, you know, it's not just the films, but you have a mm -hmm. knowledge of the literature on it. Uh, you can bring in, uh, you know, decades worth of experience with historiography on it. And then also you're bringing in these games, right? I just, I feel like a lot of the work that has been done so far, it's not that it's bad. It's just that mm -hmm. I feel like historians can add so much to that that kind of thing even if they don't even if they don't play games themselves i still think it's it's really worthwhile and yeah absolutely so. because our colleagues in other um fields they may have real depth of knowledge um about genres um 
and corpuses, but they're not subject area specialists. And yeah. so what we do as historians in terms of thinking about the different ways that the stories of what we study are told, games fit right into that. Yeah. Um, and when all of these debates in our country about how to tell U.S. history, um, right, games have narratives. So that's something that we can point to and help gamers decide what's a terrible game um, that really distorts history in really insidious ways and then what's a better game that gets more at lived experience yeah yes definitely so uh again uh the book uh is slave revolt on screen the haitian revolution in film and video games published by university of mississippi press in 2021 uh, there is uh, a hardback copy, I think, still available. I've got a paperback copy. It is in digital format, too. Uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on History Respond and talking to us about it. Thank you, Bob. This was fantastic. Dear listener, thank you for listening. Uh, we have got all of our back episodes on historyrespawn.com. And in addition, if you enjoy our work and you feel like supporting us, please visit us at historyrespawn on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash history respond. And until next time, goodbye.